You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. Okay, turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing in our series on theology. We're talking about the foundations of our faith. We're talking about theology, and we're unpacking all these things. We've talked about so far, we've talked about the doctrine of the Word of God. We've talked about the doctrine of who God is. Last week, my girl Molly brought a word. Who liked Molly's word? (laughs) Molly, she brought a word on the theology of humanity. And tonight, we're diving into just an amazing topic. We're talking about the doctrine of Christ. Somebody say, Jesus. Jesus. All right. Has anybody seen that guy on Instagram? The Jesus Christ. I love that guy. Okay. Colossians chapter one. We're going to start off in a poem that Paul includes into the introduction of Colossians, all about Jesus. I think this is going to set us up perfectly for the word, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump in. Y'all hanging in with me still? All right, let's do this. Colossians 1, 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Somebody say all things. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that, everything, that, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let that just blow your box for a second. In Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right, let's do this. Doctrine of Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your presence in this place. God, I thank you for the family of God. Man, what a privilege it is to be here, to be a part of the body of Christ this living organism that continues to grow and strengthen. And this this people, this group of people that you want to shake the world through. I thank you that there are students in this room, people in this room that you are going to drastically change the world through. You're gonna change schools through them. You're gonna change families through them. Generational lines are gonna be changed miraculously because of their trust in you. And so, God, all of us, as the people of God, we just sit before you under your word, and God, we say, would you show us who you are, Jesus? If we're here tonight and we have some misconceptions of what you're like, would you take those away? God, if there's areas in our life where we could have a better understanding of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for us, we just say, would you work on our heart? Would you work on our mind? And speak, Lord. I thank you that you're a God who speaks. And so speak through me, Lord, to every single heart in this room. Would you open up our minds and our ears to hear your voice, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Okay, as we continue in this series on theology, I just want to remind all of us 
that this series is not about like pumping you full of a bunch of knowledge and theories and concepts about God in order for you to like look like the smartest Christian in your school whenever you get asked hard questions about Jesus. We're not trying to pump you full of stuff so you can just sound smart and look like a theologian. Yes, there is an aspect of that being a good thing. Like our scripture of this series is in 1 Peter where Peter lets all of us know that we need to be, come on, has anybody been listening? We need to be prepared, that's right. So there's an aspect of this that we do need to be prepared for that moment when somebody comes up to you in school or on your team and says, hey, why do you go to church? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you believe what you believe, right? There's a, there's a level of we need to know those things in order to, to tell people the God that we serve. So there is a level of that. But on a more important note, this series is not about pumping us full of facts and concepts. This series is about expanding our capacity to love God more. Because the more you know about God, guess what? The more you want to know him because he is amazing. Remember, theology is practical. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. Remember, theology is practical. What does that mean? It means that every single thing that we're talking about in this series, all of these concepts, all of these big fancy theological sounding definitions, they sound like up here, but they're actually really down to earth. They sound like they're these like heavenly concepts, but they actually have a, a part to play and should impact all of our lives on a day in and day out basis. I'll show you this with just the few topics that we've talked about so far. We talked about the doctrine of the word of God, and that sounds like a really academic phrase, the doctrine of the word of God. That sounds like really smart, doesn't it? And it is, but the doctrine of the word of God should impact your life on a very practical sense because knowing the doctrine of the word of God should change the way you get into the word every single day. Because if you know the beliefs about God's word that we're called to live by, then reading your Bible goes from just reading a book that Christians read to hearing the voice of God. Because that's what... That's how God revealed himself to us, mainly is through his word. And so reading the word goes from just reading this book to hearing the voice of God and meeting with him. Does that make sense? The doctrine of God. We talked about that two weeks ago, the doctrine of who God is. That sounds like a really vast topic because God is pretty vast. But understanding who God is and what he's like should have a daily impact on your life. Like when you recognize, we talked about this in that week, when you recognize that God is both infinite and personal, that should change the way you pray to him, right? Because if God is infinite, that means I should be able to have the faith to pray for big stuff. Because big stuff to God is actually little stuff. He's infinite. But if I know that God is not just infinite, but he's also personal, then that means it should impact the way I pray in the sense that I don't just pray for the big things because he's infinite, but he also cares for the little things because he's personal, right? We serve a personal God. So we say this all the time at, the news, at New Song, but if it matters to you, it matters to God. That's because God, the doctrine of God, tells us that God is infinite and personal. Are you following me? Like all of the theological concepts that we're talking about, 
They're not just concepts. They should translate to all of our lives on a daily basis in, in very real and tangible ways. And in the same way, the doctrine of Christ is no different. As we dive into the doctrine of Christ and who Jesus is and what he did for us, some of the stuff we talk about, you might be thinking to yourself, like, okay, Pastor Jackson, like, that's pretty interesting. That's a cool fact about Jesus. But how does that apply to my life, like me going to school and being a student and doing all these things? Well, as we go through the doctrine of Christ, what I want you to see is that we aren't just studying facts about a historical person who lived at one point in time. We're not just studying facts about who Jesus was. We're talking about who he currently is. We're beholding Jesus. We're looking at Jesus, not at how, who he was at one point in history, but who he currently is for us. We're, we're going to learn about the fact that Jesus is alive. Our Jesus is alive. Our Jesus, his presence is here. Our Jesus is the one who, who takes our life, and he says, I want to make my home in your heart. So we're going to talk about these concepts of who Jesus is and how they should definitely impact our lives on a very practical sense. And I just, there's these two amazing quotes I just had to share with us as we get into this meat of who Jesus is. Check this out. D.L. Moody says this, a rule that I have had for years is this, to treat the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal friend. He is not a creed, a mere doctrine, but it is he himself that we have. Man, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a creed. We're not talking about this is what you believe, although this does fall under that. We're talking about Jesus, the person, the object of our worship, the person that you and I can have a relationship with. Oswald Chambers says this. This is a, oh man, this is such a good quote. Y'all aren't even ready for this. Look at this. The dearest friend on earth is a mere shadow compared to Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to read that again, but let that like sink for a second. The dearest friend on earth is a mere shadow compared to Jesus Christ. So think about that with me for a second. Think about your best friend. Who's your best friend? Think about them in your head. You love to spend time with them, right? Right? You love to spend time with them. You love to do things with them. You love to share your life with them. You love when they support you. You want to support them. Think about your best friend in the whole world. That very person that you're thinking of is just a shadow of a friend compared to the friendship that we have the ability to step into with Jesus Christ. Amen. Man, what a quote. That's some good stuff right there. We could end service right there and we'd be good, y'all. But we got to keep going. So I got three things that I want to tackle tonight about who Jesus is. Three doctrines. We're going to spend the most time on the first one. So when we're like 20 minutes in and you're like, uh, this is gonna go forever, don't worry. <laughs> first one's the longest. The last two are gonna be quick because they're gonna actually tie into a lot of what we're gonna talk about next week. But here are our three doctrines. We're gonna attack them one at a time, piece by piece, just like the way you eat an elephant, right? So number one, you eat an elephant piece by piece. You haven't heard that before? Come on, y'all. All right, number one. We're going to talk about the person of Christ, the doctrine of the person of Christ. Number two, we're going to look at the work of Christ. What did Jesus do? And then finally, we're going to look at the resurrection of Christ. Now, as believers in Jesus, we need to understand all three of these aspects of who Jesus is 
Because if we're not careful to know all of these and to relate to Jesus through all of these, we won't have a full picture. We won't have a whole picture of who he is. And if we're not careful, if we only have a, a, a small image of what he is, if, if we don't know everything we need to know about him, there's a good chance we might be relating to just one side of who Jesus is, not the whole picture. In fact, I brought some pictures of Jesus, some different ways that people tend to view Jesus. Uh, who likes pictures, by the way, in a message? I know I do. Yeah. Where are my visual learners at? Yeah. I'm praying for y'all because I'm there too. So uh, you're like, where are the pictures at? I don't know. Chapter books? Ah. Okay. These are the... I got, I got some pictures of some different ways that people view Jesus. Let's check out this first one. I mean, you may have seen this before. Has anybody seen this shirt? Jesus is my homeboy. Now, if you have owned this shirt before, I'm, I'm not talking about you. I'm just talking about my personal experience. But I feel like all the kids in high school that had this shirt were like nothing like Jesus. <laughs> They're like, Jesus is my homeboy. And they were like some crazy dudes, y'all. So some people have this view of Jesus as like, Jesus is my home dog. He's my homeboy. Some people have a view of Jesus as this. Anybody seen this one before? Yeah. Like I go to Jesus and he's like, yeah, dog, you can do whatever you want. I love you, man. And this Jesus who just like approves our life. He loves us. He's my yes man. How about this one? We got Jesus as our comforter, sweet just holding a baby lamb, so sweet. And that's you, that lamb is you, in the arms of Jesus. And uh, so some of, some of us have this view of like soft, sweet Jesus who couldn't hurt a fly. Some of us, our view of Jesus is this. <laughs> Jesus from the chosen. Now I'm just being honest, or I just, I just wanna know, has, was anybody like you watched this and then you struggled to not pray to him? or worship him. Okay. I'm glad it's not just me. Yeah, when I, when I saw The Chosen, I was like, I just can't get this guy's face out of my head. So that's some of us, that's our view of Jesus. Some of us, uh, this is our view of Jesus. Uh, conquering king, coming back on a white horse, sword out of his mouth, fire in his eyes. He gonna cut you. Some of us see Jesus this way. Now, what's interesting about all of these pictures of Jesus is there, there is some truth to all of those sides of Jesus. There's some, there's some truth to that. But we need the whole picture, right? And like, yes, Jesus is a comforter, but he's also going to ask you to do some really uncomfortable things. Like, yes, Jesus is a returning, conquering king, and he's going to mess some stuff up and be king one day of the earth that really is what he's going to do, but he also is gentle and kind and near to us. Yes, Jesus is your homeboy, but he also is not just going to approve everything you do in your life, right? All of these views are somewhat true, but we need the whole picture of Jesus. So what I want to help us do tonight is get a full picture of this Jesus we serve. So the person of Christ, first thing is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is a definition of the doctrine of the person of Christ. Here's what it is. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus Christ is fully God and he's fully man. He always will be forever. Let's go back to that verse in Colossians that we opened up with. He says, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in him and uh, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. Somebody say, all things. All things, all things were created through him and for him. And this is just the, I just can't get over this verse. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, there are some things, there are some, some topics in theology that when you study them, the Bible spells it out very clear, like black and white. There's some black and white theology, and then there's some theology that's gray. There's some theology that's up for mystery. There are some topics in theology that you can learn about, and then there are other topics in theology that you learn you will never be able to learn. And this is one of those topics. You need to know that we will never be able to fully understand the reality that, a, that God decided to be fully God and fully man all at the same time in the person of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, both natures in one, is the greatest mystery in all of the universe. Wayne Grudem says this, it is by far the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal son of God could become a man and join himself to human nature forever. So that infinite God became one person with finite man. That will forever remain eternity's most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. So you guys need to learn and understand the fact that this fact in theology is something we will never be able to fully learn or understand. And there's some people in the past who have tried to make some sense of this in their own nature. And we need to recognize that at some level, this is something that is far above our pay grade. Amen? And if we're not careful, that, thank you, that was funny. Um, was that Pilar? You got my back, girl. So... In, the church his, in church history, there's been groups of people that have, been, that have tried to make sense of this fact that we're never actually able to fully understand as human beings. And what it actually leads to is some false teachings that I want to just really quickly run through. The first was one that showed up in the early church days, in the early believers. It was a group of people called the Gnostics. The Gnostics. And they, they had this understanding about reality that since God is spirit, Everything in the material world is evil. So their, their way of living through life was like, God is spirit, and everything in the world is bad. Material world, bad. God, good. Trees, bad. Evil. God, good. My flesh, bad. God, good. Anything in this world, evil. Like that, that was their basic understanding of reality, that God is spirit, and the spirit is good, and anything material is evil inherently evil. And they couldn't wrap their brains around the fact that this God who is spirit also decided to become fully man in the person of Jesus. And instead of letting that reality be a mystery to them, they tried to explain it away. And what they actually ended up doing is explaining away the humanity of Jesus. This is what Gnostics believe. They don't believe that Jesus was really fully human, what they believed was that God came down and he didn't, he wasn't fully human, he just appeared like a human. 
He was really fully God, but he just appeared like a man. So you may be here and you're like, cool. <laughs> What's the big idea, Pastor Jackson? I don't really see why that's a problem. I'm so glad you asked, New Song students. I got a scripture for you that tells us exactly why the humanity of Jesus is so crucial for us. Look at this. This is found in Hebrews 2. It says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, Jesus didn't come to save angels. He came to save people, humans. Therefore, he had to be made like us, like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest of God to make propitiation, to, to pay for the debt for our sins as the people of God. So you need to understand that if we throw out the humanity of Jesus, if we think that Jesus wasn't really fully human, he wasn't fully man, then you, you need to recognize that it's impossible for, for Jesus to save us. It's impossible because Jesus didn't come to save fallen spiritual beings. Jesus came to save fallen human beings from their sin. In order to do that, he had to share in our humanity. He had to become fully human like us. So if we try to explain the humility away from Jesus, like the Gnostics did, then we're not really saved. We don't really have Jesus. But there's another side of the coin where people have tried to make sense of the fact that God was also fully God in human form. And this is the belief uh, that God gave up some of his nature, that God gave up some of his godness, quote unquote, in order to be a man. This is what's known as the kenosis theory. Somebody say kenosis theory. And it's the belief, it's a belief that comes from one passage in scripture. And it's Philippians 2.7, where it talks about how Christ emptied himself. Have you guys heard that scripture before? How Christ emptied himself and took the form of a servant. So they take that scripture and they believe that God, when he came down as a, as a being, as a man, he emptied himself of some of his God-like qualities in order to be fully human. There's only one problem with that. That's not what the rest of scripture tells us. Look at this, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. What about this one, Colossians 2, 9. For in him, talking about Jesus, the whole fullness. It doesn't say for in him most of God was dwelling. No, no, no. It says in him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That doesn't make sense to me, but that's kind of the point. It's a mystery. I don't know how God did that, but he did it. David Guzik says this. I love this. Jesus did not and could not become less God in the incarnation. No deity was, sub was subtracted. Though Jesus did renounce some of his privileges of deity, rather, humanity was added to his nature. So I, want, I, want, I know it was kind of wordy, but I want to explain that really quickly, what that means. Jesus didn't empty himself of any power of God when he became Jesus. He emptied himself by choosing a lower role. Because the rest of that scripture talks about him taking the form of a bondservant and humbly submitting himself to the word of God. I got a question for you, New Song students. When you do something humble, when you humble yourself and you walk in humility, are you less of a human being? No, when you walk in humility, that doesn't make you less of a person. 
That just is you saying, I'm choosing a lower role than what I deserve. Does that make sense? This is exactly what Jesus did for us. When Jesus, when it says he emptied himself, it, didn't, it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his God-like qualities. It said he emptied himself of the role of being God. So I don't know how that mystery works. I don't know exactly how it worked, how God became a man and he was still omnipotent and omnipresent and all those things in Jesus. But I know that none of his qualities left when he took the form of Jesus. And this is, uh, this is why this is important. David Guzik says this, neither the deity nor the humanity of Jesus is negotiable. If we diminish either, then he is unable to save us. If we take away the godlike qualities in Jesus, then guess what? Jesus just ends up becoming a good man, and good men can't save you. Good men can't take on the sins of the world on their shoulders, but you know who can? God can. And that's how he did it, fully God, fully man, in the person of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus is the fact by some amazing mystery that none of us will ever fully be able to understand. God was fully himself as God and a human in the form of Jesus. And I think that's some pretty amazing stuff, right? That's amazing. So how does that translate to our life? That's a very lofty thing that we just talked about. The, the humanity and godness of Jesus. How does that apply to my life today? Well, check this out. Hebrews 4.15 says this. This is so good, y'all. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were, yet without sin. So I want to break both of these things down. How Jesus' full humanity impacts our life on a daily basis and how his full godness take, impacts our life. First one is this. If you're taking notes, write this down. Since Jesus was fully human, Jesus understands what it's like to deal with suffering, emotions, and temptation. Suffering, emotions, and temptation. And I think we got to talk about this because in the church world, we struggle with these three things. I think in the church world, Christians, if we're not careful... If we don't have a good understanding, a good theology of who Jesus is, we can fall into the trap of thinking that experiencing these three things makes us less of a Christian, makes us a worse person. But you need to know that you are not a less Christ, lesser of a Christian. You're not a worse disciple if you experience something like suffering. And you know the Pharisees fell into this trap. Do you remember that story of the blind man who was born blind? The Pharisees fell into this trap because they saw the suffering in this man, and they were like, there has to be a reason for this. We've got to find somebody to blame for this suffering in your life. Was it your sin? Was it your parents' sin? They were making this guy less of a person because of the suffering that he experienced. And if we're not careful as believers, man, we'll do the same thing. We'll look at our life and we'll think, man, I, the reason why I'm suffering because of my parents' divorce is probably because of me. Like, it's probably because of me. Or maybe we'll go through a hard day and we'll blame it on the fact that we sinned the day before. We're like, it's probably like karma. Like, I sinned yesterday and God's like punishing me today. That's why I'm having such a bad day. If we're not careful, if we have some bad theology of who Jesus is, we will try to find blame. We'll find something and someone to blame for the suffering that we're experiencing. And you know who the first person that usually ends up being? Ourselves. But this is bad theology. 
Because Jesus experienced suffering and he was perfect. Jesus experienced suffering. Scripture tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Was Jesus experiencing suffering? Did that make him a bad savior? No, he was perfect, but he was human. And so he suffered some. And you know what? You're human too. And humans sometimes go through suffering that doesn't make you less of a believer, doesn't make you less of a disciple, less of a follower of Jesus. Without a good understanding of who Jesus is, we can fall into the trap of thinking that we are a bad Christian if we have emotions. Anybody ever felt crazy before? Like your emotions are getting the best of you? (laughs) I've been there before. Sometimes we look at our emotions and we have such bad theology that we think we're bad Christians because we fail anxiety. We think we're bad followers of Jesus because we struggle with our emotions. But you need to know that Jesus had emotions and not just the bad ones. Like, you know, Jesus was happy and Jesus laughed and Jesus had fun. I think Jesus was the happiest person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. Like, Jesus, if we strip away the humanity of Jesus, you know what that leaves Jesus as? A robot. <laughs> that leaves Jesus. Sometimes we read Jesus this way. We read him like he's like chat GPT, like just spitting out some, some, some awesome knowledge. But you need to know that Jesus had emotions. And he had negative ones too. He felt anxiety. He felt anger. Now, he didn't sin in those emotions. He, didn't, he wasn't led by his emotions, but he did have them. And you do too, New Song students. And I'll, I just want to free all of us from the feeling of shame for having the things that God wired us with. Like God wired you with those emotions. That doesn't mean we should let them lead our life, but it also means we shouldn't pretend that they don't exist and shove them down because Jesus had emotions. And if we have good theology of who Jesus is, guess what? That allows us to feel things God wired in us as human beings. Are you following me, New Song students? We need to have good theology of who Jesus is because without it, we can fall into the the trap of thinking that we are bad Christians if we ever experience temptation. You need to know that Jesus experienced some temptation. Jesus had temptation. He He felt the feeling of being tempted. Look at this, Hebrews 4. Let's go back to that scripture we read. For we, don't have, we, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. That's pretty clear, right? Tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, New Song students, you got to recognize to be tempted is to be human. To, to be tempted is to be human. You're not less human You're not less of a disciple or a Christian because you feel tempted. So what does that mean for us as followers of believers? Followers of Jesus. Followers of believers. Followers of Jesus. We're not followers of believers. We're followers of Jesus. Right. It means we need to have a better theology under this thing of temptation. We need to have a theology that allows us to feel tempted and not run straight to shame the second we feel tempted. We all feel temptation towards different things. Like my temptation, the the pool of my flesh, it might be in the different direction of what you're tempted by, but I want you to think about that thing for a second. What for you is the thing that you're tempted by? Where does your flesh gravitate towards? Maybe it's lust, maybe it's having more stuff, whatever it is. Think about where that pool of temptation is for you. Whatever that is for you, you got it? Everybody got it? 
Whatever that thing is for you, having the thought is not sinful. Having the thought of the temptation is not sinful. And I think we have too many Christians walking around with their heads down, feeling shameful because they felt... Because they felt temptation. They're feeling shame because they felt temptation, but they really just had the thought. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ and take every thought captive. And we teach it to obey Christ. That scripture doesn't say don't have bad thoughts. It doesn't say if you have a bad thought, you suck. (laughs) No, that scripture says, no, take the thoughts captive. Does that make sense? It doesn't say you're, ne- you're, you're bad because you had the thought. It says, no, we need to take the bad thoughts captive and teach them to obey Christ. This is, um, this is what therapy uh, calls Socratic thinking. Has anybody ever heard of this, Socratic thinking? What that means is you take your thoughts and you put them on trial. So instead of having the thought, like the impending doom thought, the intrusive thought, instead of having the temptation and then instantly feeling bad about having the thought, or instead of having the thought and instantly falling into that temptation, what you do is you take that thought and you put it on trial. You teach it to obey Christ. And you line up the evidence and you say, is this thought really true? Does this thought line up with what God says about me? So for instance, maybe for you, your temptation is to look at like something lustful on your phone. And so you have this temptation and it feels so strong. To take that thought captive would be to look like this. You take that thought and you go, man, I know I'm so tempted to, to, to look at this right now, but let me just pause for a second. Is this God's best for me? I know that this temptation is telling me that if I look at this, I'm gonna feel better afterwards, but is that really true? Let's line up the evidence. Every time I, I've looked at this in the past, I actually leave feeling way worse and covered in shame than when I left. So the evidence isn't lining up So I'm going to take this thought, and I'm going to throw it away. Does that make sense? This is what it looks like to take every thought captive. And having a good theology of who Jesus is is not just good Christian knowledge. It's practical because it frees us to experience all the things that Jesus felt and didn't sin. He felt suffering. He felt temptation. He felt his emotions. He didn't sin, though. He didn't just deal with them, though. This is where the the fullness of God being in in Jesus, this is where it gets even better. Jesus didn't just deal with the things that we have to deal with as humans. Look at this. Because, or since Jesus was fully God, Jesus has the power to help us in our suffering, in our emotions, and in our temptations. Look at Hebrews 4.16. It says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to, for, to help in the times of need. This is why that scripture says we can come boldly to Jesus because, you know, it's nice to have somebody that can relate to you and what you're going through, but it's even better to have somebody who can actually do something about it. And this is what's so amazing about Jesus being fully human and fully God. The fact that he's fully human means he relates to you. He knows what it's like to go through what you're going through, but the fact that he's fully God means that he can actually take you out of that thing and put your feet on a solid rock. Amen. This is our Jesus, New Song students, fully human, fully God, in one person, 
that we can know. And I want to invite the band to come up as we get ready to hit the last two uh, points of the person of Jesus. We just looked at the person of Jesus. Now let's look really quickly at the work of Christ. The work of Christ. What, what did Jesus do for us? Well, I think if you were to ask any random person on the street, I think 98% of them would say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that's true. 100% true. Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross. He didn't just pay for our sin on the cross, but you need to recognize that Jesus bore our sin. That means that, that God took all of the sin of humanity, and at the cross, he laid all of that on Jesus and punished Jesus for the sins of all of humanity because it had to be dealt with. Wayne Grudem says this, Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Jesus, sometimes we talk about the cross so flippantly. We're like, yeah, Jesus paid for my sins. And you need to know that, that God's wrath was poured out all on Jesus in that moment of the cross. This is what, this is what causes us to want to worship him to know the depths of what he actually accomplished on the cross. So yes, the work of the cross is a part of the work of Jesus. But you need to know that the work of Christ doesn't start and end at the cross. There's a lot more to the work of Jesus. Jesus, if you're taking us, write this down. Jesus died for our sin, but he also lived for our righteousness. And that's an amazing reality that too many believers are not tapping into. The fact that Jesus did not just die for your sin, but he also lived for your righteousness. You need to know that Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us, that, who, none of us could have ever lived, and he did that for a reason. Because if Jesus just paid for our sin on the cross, you know where that would put us? That would just put us back at the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were. And then we would be responsible for living a perfect life. Like if Jesus just paid for our debt, that would just wipe the slate clean. But we get so much more than that through Jesus. We don't just get our, our, our debts cleaned. We get Jesus's righteousness on us. You know what that means? And you need to know this, New Song students. When you become a Christian, when you give your life to Jesus, God sees you and your performance as perfect for the rest of your life. You receive the righteousness of Christ. You know what that means? That means for the rest of your life as a believer, there's not a single thing that you could do that would make God love you more. There's not a single sin, not a single thing you could do that would make God look at you and think less of you. When you receive Jesus, you don't just receive your payment of sin. God takes the, the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on you. You receive a coat of righteousness. That's amazing, right? This is the work of Jesus. He didn't just die for your sins. He died for your, he lived for your righteousness, New Song students. And that should change our life practically. Man, that should give you so much peace in your life when you're in a sin that you're struggling with. And I'm not saying it's okay to stay in sin, but you know what that should give us? That should give us peace. Because you know what? Even though I'm still struggling with this, man, I'm the righteousness of Christ. And I know God can take, I know God is working in my heart. I know he's bringing me into greater levels of freedom in my life. 
This is the work of Jesus. The last thing I just wanna hit real quick, and we're gonna get ready to wrap up, is the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection. This is cool. Like, Jesus is in heaven right now, currently, in his resurrected body. Like his actual human body. He got a new resurrected body coming out of that tomb and and it ascended into heaven and it's still there. And somehow his presence is here at the same time because he says, where two are gathered in my name, there I am. This is the mystery of Jesus. God is so good. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We have to have the resurrection. Look at this, verse 20. But if in fact Christ has raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means that this, that means this. Some of us, we think of heaven and let's just be honest, we have a really bad picture of what heaven is gonna look like because we think we're gonna be those like babies with diapers on and like angel wings and like floating around. And can I just tell you, that's not what heaven's gonna look like. Like the new heavens and the new earth, it's gonna look like this. We're gonna get resurrected bodies like Christ that, never get sick. We're gonna live perfectly in the presence of God. Like Jesus didn't die for a spiritual reality alone. He died to renew and resurrect all of creation. And then this is the beauty of God that he doesn't just care about our spirits, but he cares about our material world. Like God cares about all the things that we go through so much that he wants to create a new heavens and a new earth one day. And he proved all of that through the resurrection of Christ. Man, we serve an amazing God, New Song students. And having the good theology of who Jesus is, man, it just opens up our hearts to just give ourselves over to Jesus more and more. And so we're gonna do that right now, man. I want you to invite, I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we get ready to respond to this message.